Thank you, Neil. And it's been great uh, to be back again here. Uh, it's always got such a good uh, welcome and feeling of um, God's presence and spirit among you here each time I come. Uh, another a nice connection today is that uh, I actually was assistant minister at the start of my ministry in Neil's home congregation when we were both uh, significantly younger than we are today, so I don't even have any embarrassing stories about him, but it's good to be back, and uh, let's pray and expect God, by his Spirit, to speak to us this evening. It was a normal Sunday night youth fellowship. There had been the usual boisterous chat at the start, a bit of the normal flirting, uh, a few icebreaker games, and then the spiritual bit. The speaker got up and handed out some pens and paper and said, I want you all to pretend that your friend Jesus is writing you a letter telling you how he feels about you. Write down what you think would be in that letter. After about 10 minutes, the letters came back in. Dear Annie, I'm really disappointed in you. I saw how yesterday on the way home from school, you ignored that girl who was being bullied and you didn't speak up to help her. Dear Craig, I know you lied to your parents about where you were last night. I hope you're going to do the right thing and tell them. Dear Lizzie, you know that you had the opportunity to witness in school last week and you were too afraid to. Dear Sam, you still haven't sorted out your anger problem, have you? And you know that that's not a very good witness. And so it went on. The speaker told me that it was one of the most depressing events they had ever spoken at because it made them wonder these kids, these good kids who are at church every week, these youth fellowship kids, what are we teaching them about God so that the very first thing they think about is disappointment, and rebuke, or even his anger? How different from the way in which Paul encourages his young church in Thessalonica. Now, Paul wasn't reticent about telling his churches to live a good life and to work hard at their discipleship, but it is always in the context of establishing, first of all, their secure identity in Christ and their unfailing grasp of the love and grace of God. In his letters, the commands, the exhortations that he gives them will always follow the gospel news of who they are in Christ. If you like your grammar, it's the imperatives, the commands, always follow the indicatives, the statements of what Christ has done for them. God does not ask us to be what we cannot be aside from our being in him. How different might the outlook of those young Christian teenagers have been if they had really understood the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians? How might it have changed their perspective on God? And how might it have changed their perspective on the church? Because in 1 Thessalonians, 
we get a profile of a living and active church, and we get the picture of a living and true God. First of all, the profile of a living church. And in these few verses that Neil read for us, we see how the Thessalonian church was alive because of how they encountered the gospel, because of how they received the gospel, and because of how they witnessed to the gospel, how they encountered the gospel, how they received the gospel, and how they witnessed for the gospel. They encountered a gospel, says Paul in verses 4 and 5, that came to them not just in words. Now, the gospel, of course, did come to them in words. It was a message. It involved true statements about God and about themselves. It involved communicating by speech. Contrary to the cliche sometimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but probably not said by him, where uh, it is preach the gospel and if necessary use words, that doesn't actually make sense. If we, if we read the story of Paul's evangelism in Acts, we see that he debated, he dialogued, he disputed, he argued, he preached, he proclaimed, he communicated by words. But there is a noticeable difference between him and the various philosophers who were also debating and disputing and preaching and proclaiming. We know from Acts chapter 17 that just immediately after he planted this church that he's writing to in Thessalonica, he went to Athens where he famously preached to the Areopagus. And he encountered the various Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and those who were told enjoyed dabbling in the latest ideas. They listened to philosophers who prided themselves in their clever use of words, getting their kicks out of having a winning argument. And Paul could match them in argument, but he knew that that was only part of the story. There was something significantly different about this gospel message. The message that he was proclaiming, debating, was accompanied by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that led to a deep internal conviction in the preachers and in the hearers, verse 5. And so the gospel came to these Thessalonians in words, but not just in words. A couple of decades ago, there was a lot of interest in what was called power evangelism, still popular in some circles today. Uh, it is, was believed that all evangelism was ineffective unless it was accompanied by some supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit, be it healings or exorcisms or words of knowledge. The argument was that Paul's ministry in Athens, for example, was unsuccessful because there is no record there of signs and wonders accompanying it. Now, that's a misreading, actually, of what's happening in Acts 17, where there were a few significant conversions. The reality is that in Acts, there are diverse ways and diverse contexts in which the gospel comes to the various cities of Europe at that time. Sometimes the power of the Holy Spirit is seen externally in supernatural ways, and sometimes in not so obvious ways, but there is always a power behind it. In my ministry with students, we do a lot of work in what is called apologetics, 
building up a defense of the Christian worldview and the gospel to show, first of all, to those outside that this makes sense, that they're not committing intellectual suicide by believing this, that it is a coherent and consistent message, but also to help Christians to reassure them that what they believe is actually true. But valuable though that ministry of apologetics is, it cannot stand alone. It is the servant of evangelism. It's a tool in our box, but just one tool. Because what changes people are not just good, clever arguments, because then they're tempted to maybe ditch that if they hear something one day that they think might be more convincing. The argument, the apologetic supplements, it reinforces something that they know in their hearts to be true because the message of the gospel has made a difference to them. It has been accompanied by power, by the Holy Spirit, and by deep conviction. The late Michael Green, one of the greatest evangelists among students in the last generation, was once asked by a colleague of mine who was a little skeptical about a lot of what was classed as signs and wonders. He was asked, do signs and wonders always have to accompany evangelism? And Michael, who was very open and a wonderful evangelist, said in his usual posh English way, of course not, old boy but they can help from time to time if God sovereignly decides to use them. Here in Thessalonians, the reference is not so much about the signs and wonders, which in the Greek is usually plural, powers. It's much more about the power of the Holy Spirit in general to transform lives. So the way in which Paul describes here how the gospel is encountered sets him apart and will set the later apostles apart from other philosophers, ancient and modern, because here we have in their teaching a deep conviction, a confidence, rather than simply propositions thrown out to be considered and probably discarded. Behind all of this is the divine agency of the Holy Spirit, something that no other philosopher could lay claim to. Now remember in Acts, for example, the story of Simon the sorcerer, who when he encountered the coming of the Holy Spirit, he came to recognize that this was something completely different from anything he had heard or seen before. Without the Holy Spirit's witness, our witness will be futile. John Stott writes of the work of the Holy Spirit, He says, it is he who illumines our minds so that we formulate our message with integrity and clarity. It is he whose inward witness assures us of the message's truth so that we preach it with conviction. And it is he who carries it home with power so that the hearers respond to it in penitence, faith, and obedience. And so a living and thriving church will be a church made up of people who have responded to the gospel, not just because it sounded like a good idea, but because it came to them with deep conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. And then we see that a living church is one that receives the gospel in spite of adverse circumstances. In the case of the Thessalonians, they received the gospel 
in the midst of trials, sufferings, afflictions. We read about it in Acts 17. There were riots, persecutions, beatings. And yet, says Paul, <clears throat> you received the gospel with great joy. Here's another illustration of how the gospel encountered with power and deep conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit will result in us having the fruit of that spirit, joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Even though responding to this gospel, accepting this message, <coughs> recognizing its truth, will involve inconvenience, discomfort, persecution. Still, its truth was so self-evident to the Thessalonians that they responded to it with joy in spite of the implications for them. This is the experience, of course, of Christians the world over, willing to put their careers, their reputations, even their very lives on the line because they know what they are hearing is true and they are encountering in the gospel the living God himself. And says Paul, as they responded to the gospel, they became imitators of him and of the Lord. Verse 6. To our ears, that might appear slightly false. We may struggle to understand what Paul means and why he doesn't just say you became imitators of the Lord. Why is he setting himself up as someone to be imitated? Is that not contrary to the humility we would expect of a Christian leader? Is that not setting himself up for a fall? Well, I'll come back to that in a moment. What we need to understand just now is the way that the Thessalonians received the gospel with joy in spite of persecution, that that was an imitation of Paul, how Paul himself had received the gospel. His life, you know, was turned around. His preaching is characterized by joy, most notably in the book of Philippians. And his ministry was also characterized by numerous persecutions. And yet he held on to that joy. And it was that that the Thessalonians were imitating. If how you encountered the gospel was through someone who was joyless and doer and lacking in conviction, then your Christian life is likely to be joyless and doer and lacking conviction. If those who preached to us were simply presenting a message dripping with duty, and advocating a sort of religious observance and not expounding the wonder and the joy of God's grace, then what we will inevitably inherit will be a religiosity that is dripping with duty and has no grasp of the immensity of God's grace. But if how we have encountered the gospel has been through those who exhibited a deep joy and conviction in spite of the cost that was involved, then when we respond, we will be under no illusions that there is a cost, but we will have regarded it as worth it because of the deep joy and conviction that we also experience. A living and a thriving church will be made up of people like this who know the cost, but who count it as nothing compared to the insurpassable riches and joy of knowing God himself. 
And then the Thessalonians also demonstrated the reality of their faith in how they witnessed to this gospel. And they did not just do that locally, but everywhere that they were known. And this is where we see the imitators becoming the imitated. Just as they followed the example of Paul, they in turn were imitated by all the other churches in Macedonia and Achaia. They became models. As they had grown in their faith by modeling the lifestyle and doctrine of those who had brought them the gospel, so too other churches began to look at them and imitate their generosity and hospitality and faith and joy and conviction. These Thessalonians were influencers before there were ever influencers. And of course, although it's not the main point of this passage, I think it's fair to see here also an evangelistic dimension. We often say when folks point out the shortcomings of the church or of Christians, don't look at us, look at Jesus. Now there's truth in that, of course, but it's also potentially a dangerous cop-out. It can incline us to think that our actions don't really matter so long as people keep looking at Jesus. Well, the only Jesus they may ever meet is the Jesus in you and in me. Before they open a Bible or listen to an evangelistic message or inclined in any way to do research into who Jesus was, they will be looking at us. A lifelong atheist came to our Christianity Explored one year, did the whole course a couple of times, was very thoughtfully thinking it all through. And then he started to come to church in the evenings. And his atheist friends were baffled by this. What's all this church business, they asked. Well, I'm looking into Christianity, he said. I want to give it a fair hearing. Well, you don't need to go to church to do that, they said, sounding uncannily like a few Christians, unfortunately. You can research it by reading a few books. And he says, no, I've done that. Now I need to be around Christians more to see if it's true. What a challenge. I don't know if he ever did resolve it all before he died, but he taught me a valuable lesson. A thriving and living church is one where the members are role models. I've observed recently that in terms of the various life transitions that we all face, going to university, leaving home, getting married, having kids, one of the greatest spiritual challenges could actually come at the later life transitions. The empty nest period when the kids have all left. Or maybe the transition of moving into retirement years when there's the temptation to think that we've not much left to offer and we can put our feet up. I've observed many Christian couples who've been active in church life, maybe even leaders in the Christian community, and when the kids have gone, they have simply grown apathetic, cynical, or cold. Now, sad for a number of reasons, not least their own relationship with God, but also the loss that they are to the church who need to see models to be imitated 
as Paul was teaching the Thessalonians here. They need to see folks running the race right to the finishing line. One of our IFES leaders said recently, speaking to the older generation, don't think you have nothing left to offer. Don't think that you've done your bit. You have something incredibly important left to give. Your example. You're being watched by the generations following you. And he's right. If those following after us are young people, teenagers, young adults, see us doing the Christian thing only as long as we have to, but dropping out to spend more time with the sun, sea, snow, soccer, or second homes, or whatever it might be, they will draw the inevitable conclusion that this faith thing is not for life. And if it's not for life, then why bother now? Is it really the life-transforming, worldview-altering, universally relevant, only hope for mankind that we have said it is? If it can be discarded so quickly, like the kids' school uniforms. The Thessalonians became examples and models to the other believers, and I believe, to the watching world. This is not a call for perfection or false piety. It's not trying to put any of us into some guilt trip because we feel that maybe we've been bad leaders or uh, incompetent parents. As important as it is to model how to live when our faith is strong, and we exhibit that deep joy and deep conviction, it is equally important, maybe more important, to model for others how we cope with failure, to demonstrate the healthy way to deal with mistakes. It is vital for others as they're watching us to also see what it means for us to repent, to apologize, to be restored. Perhaps one of the main reasons why some do not persevere in the Christian faith is because they think that one mistake or failure has disqualified them from further service. But what if they were to see a community of examples where confession and repentance and reconciliation were the norm, where people kept short accounts with one another and still loved one another? then maybe they would feel that, yeah, I could have a part in that. A thriving church has a witness that is obvious locally and further afield. But of course, this is not just about what we can learn from the Thessalonians. As well as giving us a profile of a thriving and living church, this chapter also outlines for us the character of the living and true God. And that is what frames these verses that Neil read for us. In verse 4 and verse 10, we see two things about God in each verse that sometimes we struggle to hold together. In verse 4, we see a God who chooses and a God who loves. And in verse 10, we read of a God who is angry and a God who saves. But they shouldn't be that difficult to hold together because it is out of his love that God chooses. And it is because of his righteous anger that in love he made it possible for us to have a way of being saved. 
Because we are by nature sinful rebels to God's way and his will, the only way to know this God is if he chooses to draw us to himself. And out of his great love, that is what he has done. The doctrine of election is only in the scriptures as an encouragement, as an incentive to keep going because God already holds us. The doctrine of election is there precisely to prevent us from thinking that our mistakes rule us out of God's love or to stop us presuming that our successes somehow makes us deserve his love. The doctrine of election should not make us proud or we have grossly misunderstood it. It should make us humble and grateful and thankful and all the more aware of his love and the need to proclaim it to a needy world. It is because of how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel message that Paul can say with certainty that they had been chosen by God. He'd seen the fruits. John Stott again says that far from making evangelism unnecessary, the doctrine of election makes evangelism indispensable because how people respond and the transformational effect it has on their lives shows us the fruit and the results of God's election. And similarly in verse 10, the chapter ends with a picture of God's judgment about to come on the world. But this is not to frighten the Thessalonians, it is to make them and us even more aware of the depth of God's love for us because he has saved us from that judgment. The resurrection of Jesus proved that death is not the end. The second coming of Jesus proves that this world will pass away. And both of those doctrines mentioned in verses 9 and 10, the resurrection and the second coming, are essential parts of God's plan of salvation. Salvation from judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are awaiting his return. We can only appreciate God's salvation once we have understood what it is that we have been saved from. If God is not angry at the evil in this world, he is not a perfect and loving God who I could worship. And if there is no judgment at the end for anything, then our salvation is cheap and worthless. It is precisely because of what we have been saved from that we can have that deepened inner joy, even when the evil of this world is surrounding us in trials and afflictions and persecutions as it was with the Thessalonians. So what was the key? What was involved in these Thessalonians receiving the gospel with such joy? Well, we see it in verse 9. This is the hub of the Thessalonians' own testimony, the central aspect of their spiritual journey, what they were renowned for. The people in the surrounding area were able to say that they had turned to God from idols. It was a recognition that a transformation had taken place. There had been a reorientation of heart. What would it look like for others to see that in us? 
a reorientation of our hearts, a turning from idols. Could it be said of us that it is known how we turned from the worship of money to the worship of the true and living God? How we turned from the worship of sex to the worship of the true and living God? How we turned from materialism or sectarianism or the gods of leisure or sport or whatever to worship the true and living God? Because it became clear that that is where our heart was pointed. We enjoy all the rest of the gifts that God gives us in this life, but there is never any question about what comes first. The Thessalonians were written these words of great encouragement by the Apostle Paul, reminding them that they had been chosen and loved by God reminding them that the message wasn't just a philosophy, but had come to them in power and with deep conviction, reminding them that they could still have great joy in the midst of their affliction, reminding them that even their small, little, seemingly insignificant steps of obedience and discipleship had become known in the surrounding areas because it was clear that they had turned from the stuff that everybody else was chasing and desiring to love and to worship the living God. Paul writes these words to build them up, to encourage them. How good would it have been if one of those teenagers at that youth fellowship had been able to write this? Dear Sam, just wanted you to know how delighted I am that you are taking time out tonight to spend it with me when you could be doing so many other things. I want you to know that I love you and that I will never let you go. I so want you to know more of my love and power as you seek to live for me each day. I know how difficult it can be to live for me at school and among your friends. It can be hard when everybody else doesn't believe or misunderstands you. I experienced that, and I warned my first disciples that it would happen to them too. I hope that as you get to know me better, you will experience a deep joy even when times are hard. I don't want you to feel defeated whenever the world seems against you, or to feel written off whenever you make a mistake. I have known you from before you were born and there is nothing you can do to make me love you any more or any less. Don't forget, we're only able to have this conversation because I'm alive. I am here each day for you, and one day I'm coming back so that you can be with me forever. But until then, you have nothing to fear because you're mine, and I will hold you, your friend, Jesus. Wishful thinking? Am I just making that up? No, each phrase in that letter is based on this passage in 1 Thessalonians, in our Bibles, which after all is God's love letter to each one of us. Let me pray.